Welcome to the Success IQ podcast, the show for entrepreneurs who want to create and live an exceptional life. I'm your host, Jeff Nicholson, and this is episode 49. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. I truly hope you are having a fantastic week. We have got another fantastic guest, possibly someone who may start singing Viva Las Vegas because that's where they are coming from. It is Tim Sanders. And Tim has spent most of his early career on the cutting edge of innovation and change. He was an early stage member of Mark Cuban's Broadcast.com, which had the largest opening day of IPO in history. After Yahoo acquired the company, Tim was tapped to lead their value lab. And by 2001, he rose to Chief Solutions Officer. Great title there, Tim. In 2005, he founded Deeper Media, which provides consulting services for leading brands. Today, he is one of the top-rated speakers of the lecture circuit. And Tim, I just want to say a welcome to the show. Well, glad to be with you, Jeff. What, what, is, what is a Chief Solutions Officer before we get into it? What does that, what does that actually mean? So that title was crafted after Yahoo co-founder Jerry Yang saw um, the movie Pulp Fiction. Ah. So do you remember the movie Pulp Fiction? I do. Okay. There's a character, the wolf, the Harvey Keitel character, the wolf. Yes. brought him in to fix things. Yeah. That's what I did. So chief solutions officer, I dealt with a lot of critical situations, mostly in sales and business development. I'd fly around the world, and this is back at the turn of the century, years 2000, 2004. Mm. I'd fly around the world dealing with our biggest challenges um, on the ground. So that was a fun job. Got a lot of miles from that and um, developed a lot of resilience for adversity through the experience. Wow, fantastic. So can you give us a little bit of a background on on um sort of your history maybe where where you started out to the to where you are today? Absolutely. So I was raised in eastern New Mexico, West Texas, so it's the greater southwest. I was raised by my grandmother on a farm. I spent some formidable years in grammar school in special education program. Um, and, and that made me a tough guy. You can only imagine when they put me back in regular school later, I was a championship debater. That's how I paid my way through college. Um, I was given a law school scholarship, um, called the Jaworski scholarship, but over the summer between graduating from college and law school, I discovered reggae music. So I took a walkabout, so to speak, turned down law school, grew dreadlocks and traveled around with a reggae band. That was an interesting diversion in my career. Um, I, I, I settled back into business a few years later when the bus broke down and they went back to Jamaica and I settled into a career in sales and marketing originally at Southwestern Bell Mobile, which launched cellular phones in the United States in the mid eighties. And towards the late nineties, I saw an opportunity to go to work for Mark Cuban, which many people know from Shark Tank, but I was an early stage member of his startup, which was Broadcast.com, and that's what put me squarely in the technology space. After I left Yahoo in 2005, I founded my Deeper Media, which is a research and training firm, and I've written five books based on the insights I've learned either from my career or from my research. And so today, Jeff, I uh, travel around the world giving talks and doing training programs uh, for various organizations. And it's, it's, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons why I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. One is because the, the in, in improving my um, – in improving my – format of being a more more of an international speaker is definitely one on there which 
people mm. like that people like yourself always inspire me anyway but also is is i'm i'm really curious because one of the books that you've written is called it's one of the new york best new york times bestseller love is the killer app how to win business and influence friends um and where did that book come from what sort of created um that motivation and inspiration for you to write that Great question. Um, it, it really, it really came from like a moment in time, 1997, right about the time I met Cuban and went to work for his company. I had a paradigm shift, Jeff, that if you're going to be successful in life, the best way to do it is to commit yourself to promote other people's success and trust the universe. I've been trying to do it exactly the opposite my whole career. I tried to become successful by getting other people to help me getting other people to like me, getting other people to vote for me, say to get a job like a manager or a leader position. And w- what happened was, uh, I was, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, I read a bunch and I reread a book, uh, called love by Leo Biscalia. He's a New York professor and he believed love's the only reason we're alive. He believed it was the greatest force in the universe. He believed that too many people um, didn't take love to their entire life, for example, to work. And I was like, yes. And then when I go to work for Mark, his motto for business, the sign on the wall is make love, not war. And I was in the perfect place at the perfect time. And, And so I had to ask myself the question, well, if it's really true that love is the most powerful force in the world, could it be the most powerful force in business? I said, yes. So I kept doing research on the the history of the word love. And what I really settled on is this definition that I use for professional love. Professional love is when you support someone's career and their success, and you do it by sharing your key intangibles, your knowledge, your network of relationships, and your human compassion. So Jeff, I started to put this to work in 1997 just with my customers and then with my colleagues inside broadcast.com. And immediately I saw that I'd built a very different brand from everyone else. And I was getting FaceTime with very senior executives that most people in my position didn't get. So when I got to Yahoo, I started to make that a little training program for new hire orientation. We used to call it biz love, I think is what we called it. And it was just about the idea that you should care about each other and here's the best way to show it. And so I'd always go out and give that little talk to the yahoos and a literary agent from Dallas somehow was told to come see one of my talks. And after I finished, she came up with her big expensive handbag and says, darling, let's go to New York. This is a book. (laughs) Brilliant. <laughs> what are you going to do, right? Yeah. And I said, I'm not an author. And she says, so what? She says, I discovered Stephen Covey. I discovered Tony Robbins. I discovered Phil McGraw, Deepak Chopra. I'm like, okay, well, I'm with you. And uh, she developed the idea a little bit, got me a great editor, got me a great publisher, Random House Crown. And I did the book on my own time over the summer of 2001. The book was published on Valentine's Day the following year, and today we've got a million copies in print, and it turns out there's a lot of people in the world that want to find success, but they don't want to have to be a jerk to get there. Yeah, there's there's, a, there's loads of interesting points there. Number one, I mean, you had to launch it on Valentine's Day, didn't you? I mean, right, well, exactly. Yeah, you just had on to. Valentine's Day. <laughs> the other thing, there's a couple of other things. So number one is it's uh, it's I suppose is it you must have had a, a, quite a big challenge. In, in with certain personalities I get within the business world that you're talking about something, uh, let's say, soft and squidgy and fluffy to some people. 
how did you how do you how do you sort of navigate that sort of thing do you kind of how what is your filter for that oh oh it's 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 been it's been a challenge but but here's the thing um in my view you cannot lead people that you do not care about i think everybody can agree with that in my view you can't deliver great customer service if you don't care about your customers so i think we're okay with the word care yeah. But love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. It's something that you do, right? Yeah. So so I think the way that even serious business people have been able to really embrace this and champion it mm-hmm. is to think about the three steps I recommend, right? So I'm not just talking about you feeling a squishy, positive way about people. I'm saying, okay, because you care about them, you're going to make them more successful. So when I was working for Cuban back in the day when I first started practicing this love system, I applied it to customers during a time of great change. Mm. So my customers back in the late 90s were retail companies, and that was when e-commerce was first coming out. So guess what? Step number one of the love process is to mentor people, share knowledge, solve their uncertainties. And that required becoming a voracious reader of books. So I always tell people, if you really want to be more successful in life, you have to commit yourself to personal development and not blogs, not short form articles, not tweets. You need to read books, Mm. difficult, helpful, game changing books. I think it's the first act of business love. And then you need to start giving books like prescriptions to colleagues and customers and change conversations from gossip or sports to new concepts and new constructs. That's the first step of the love system. Mm. It is the foundation of professional relationships because when you give people insights they need during a time of change, Mm. you become a trusted advisor. And that's the beginning of the process. You know, that the idea then, Jeff, is that Once you've shared your knowledge and you're so committed to gathering it to give it away, you establish enough trust where you can risk sharing your network of relationships because your network is your greatest net worth in the world. And you don't just give that away blindly. You first establish trust, right? Mm. So then you've shared your knowledge. You've shared your network. Now you've established not only loyalty but mutual respect. And this is when you bring your compassion and you bring that human touch and you bring that that familiarity into relationships. And I think people can accept that if that's the route to building a relationship, Uh that's certainly a hard science that leads to a very strong brand. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that, it's that trust. And I suppose in the, in the, in the corporate or in the business world, it's re-educating them not to be in the competition, internal competition Routine. Right. I mean, obviously, business is competition anyway. But it's yeah. So, so that, that's a good point. So, about the time I was rereading Leo Biscali when this idea was hitting me, I reread for the umpteenth time Stephen Covey Senior's Seven Habits. Right. Mm. But when I reread it, there was a section in there. It wasn't even a chapter. It was just part of a section, and it just flipped my paradigm, Jeff. And it, and I can even quote it to you. Uh, Doctor Covey wrote, "The abundance mentality comes from a deep sense of self worth." And confidence, where one believes there is enough to share, enough to go around. But mm. too many people are mired in the scarcity mindset where they compete in moments they should be collaborating. Yeah. 
When I read that, I shut the book and said, I know how I'm going to stand out from the crowd. I'm going to be the big dog from now on. I believe there's enough to go around. And, and, And that rewired the way I thought about knowledge, right? Knowledge is not power. Distributed knowledge is rocket fuel for successful careers, right? So I learned that the abundance mentality is true, that this whole scarcity mindset that makes everybody compete, it's an illusion. Mm. Yeah. And it's an illusion. So, so when I was freed from that, it was easy for me to give knowledge away, to share my network and expect nothing in return, to risk myself by being vulnerable and saying things like, I really care about you to those that are struggling because I had gained that self-worth and that confidence. And I really credit that aha moment to Dr. Covey that really set me forward in my career. So you really hit on a big point there, the abundant scarcity decision that people have to make. Yeah. Wow. That, that's, um, that, that, that's really, that's yeah. Okay. I may have to, I might have to edit the pauses there. Cause that is, that's something that's really sort of something I discovered when I, when I sort of was regaining my, I guess my life back after my illness yeah. is one yeah. of the one of the things I realized was is, is that I'd always been for me I always start with trust first yeah. um as, at least I certainly do after my my sort of crucible moment is it was looking and goes I always start at trust first but the amount of people that tried to tell me that that's not the right way to do it that well my, right go on sorry well, that's just a common belief, right? I mean, mm. everybody's had a boss at one time tell them you're too nice. Oh God, I, I grew up with that. I grew from from so, the age of sixteen. I was told right? that I would be far too. Na- you know, I'm 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 a lovely lad, especially from my parents and stuff. I'm a lovely lad, but you can't be nice in business. And it's like, what balls is that? I tell you what balls that is. I call it ego economics. Right. Okay. Maslow may have a hierarchy of needs, but let me tell you, an intellectual person's greatest fear in the world: I will be taken advantage of. Yeah. I yeah. will give to someone. They will not say thank you. They will take and run with it. They won't give me credit, and sometimes they'll use it against me. And what I mean by ego economics is that our ego grossly exaggerates the number of times people take advantage of us. So you can go out and help 10 people. And if one person takes Mm. advantage of that information, doesn't give back, doesn't say thank you, maybe competes with you with it. Mm. You're like, it feels like 90%. You think I'm never going to let that happen again. So one of my personal mottos is that I'm often provisioned, but I'm never taken advantage of. No, I like that. Okay. Okay. Right. So, because my, my, my thing has always been nice people can be taken advantage of, but nice, smart people succeed. Yeah. So if you want to be generous, but you worry that that will make you less effective, just work on your technique. That's what I've learned. Mm. You know, I've learned that I want to promote other people's success. That's the secret, you know, to the love system. But you have to be intelligent about who you do that for, right? Mm. So I focus on helping heroes, People that have courage, they have a sense of purpose. They're moving in a direction that I'm aligned with. That's who I help. Mm. And and quite frankly, Jeff, I shun the takers yeah. of the world. Yeah. Because they're not going to pay it forward. And I think the other trick to this, and this is an important takeaway that's not in the book. I've just developed it in the last few years traveling around the world. I think it's really important when you help people, however you help them in business, you should assume that they are paying it forward. Mm. 
Now, the reason that's important is that oftentimes that's not how we think. We assume they're going to reciprocate. We, we, we say we're helping somebody. We're investing in someone. Okay. When the leader mentors, the new contributor, she's making an investment in that contributor reciprocating by being more engaged and loyal to the organization and all that stuff. Right. So their assumptions, reciprocity, here's the problem. Reciprocity can easily be measured, invalidated and trigger eco-economics. But if you flip the script and you say, I assume she's paying it forward, you never see it. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you can assume it always occurs. You let go yeah. of the need to be repaid, and it keeps you generous over time. It reminds me of this, this French philosopher, André Gide. He said, that which you cannot release possesses you. Mm-hmm. So when pay it forward becomes your new paradigm for what you want the recipient to do with your gift— you have released yourself from payment expectations, right? And I think that, for me, over the last five years has been the most significant discovery um, that that I think has not only changed my life, but a lot of the people I've counseled who've really struggled with ego economics. Yeah, and and, and actually, I want to I want to make that point to the, to the listeners because quite often is is I'll get people who if it's you know if they hear me speak or they call to for about different things. One of the things that they really start fearful of is I can't share my content because they've got that, like you say, they've got that real fear basis is people are going to take my stuff and I'm not going to benefit. But by giving with, I guess you're saying giving without the expectation of return, but deep down, you know, there's going to be something coming back. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, deep down what I know. Yeah. Is that if I give without expectations, I build relationships. And yeah. deep down, I know yeah. that my set of relationships is the stronghold that will care for me and catch me when I fall or face significant adversary. I will, I will never call it in. I just trust that's what the result's going to be. And like I said, if I look at it realistically, guess what? Nine times out of 10, that's how people really do behave. Because yeah. in Western civilization, the, the reciprocity instinct mm. is – uh, very, very consistent. Our parents bring us up to say thank you and push back, right? So would yeah. they do it? They just don't do it every time. But again, if you assume they're paying it forward, you won't feel that way. But but let me back up. You said something really interesting, and I hear this all the time too, other people in my space. I don't want to give away my content. Hmm. One of my buddies um, in California, and I'm not name dropping because okay. I don't like people that do that, but yeah. but I have to source this for you, give them credit. One of my buddies in California uh, is the founder of Atari, his name is Nolan Bushnell. You should Class. definitely, if you haven't had him on your show, you should have him on your show. Oh, I'll, I'll take him. <laughs> he wrote a book called Finding the Next Steve Jobs. And he was Steve Jobs' first boss. He hired Steve Jobs and Wozniak to build the game Breakout in Atari. This is wow. like back in, I want to say like the, the, the late 1970s. This is before Steve and Woz did Apple. Uh-huh. So anyway, he was his first boss, got to know him well. And so fast forward like 12 years. And, you know, he's already sold Atari and Bushnell's now founded this restaurant chain called Chuck E. Cheese, very popular chain here in the U.S. And Steve, of course, has gone on to do Apple. And so Bushnell and, and, and Jobs are, are in Paris, the left bank, 
uh, and Steve had made his first international trip ever to go to a party that Nolan was throwing for his new company. And so Steve was talking to Nolan about how everybody copies me. You know, when we have an idea like VisiCalc, immediately the next day, somebody's got the same idea, you know, like IBM. We're going to have a color computer. The very next day, someone's doing purple computers. He says, what's the solution to piracy? And Nolan looks at him and says, be prolific. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, I tell people this in content world. It's like, hey, how many hours a day do you read? And they look at me with glassed over eyes. I go, how many hours a day do you spend developing new content that's not the rehash of your old content? They look at me. I go, that's your problem. Mm. You are, have scarcity of content. It's real. Mm. You've literally got one 45-minute speech. You need to do more because that's what I do. Um, I read at least four books a month. I spend at least 20 hours a week developing fresh content for new audiences. So for me, I have an abundance of knowledge to give away. In fact, sometimes I'm looking for a home for this stuff and I'm flattered when people absorb my content and begin to quote it and use it and adapt it and charge money for it mm. because I got enough. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Presentation Genius. You might remember Simon from Presentation Genius from way back in episode five. It's one of the highest downloaded episodes of the show, probably because of the sheer amount of content Simon gave away. Well, now he's giving away more at his only public training course in the UK this year. It's on September the 15th, and there's all the information you need at presentationgenius.info forward stroke Durham. What's more, Success IQ listeners can get 13% off whatever ticket you buy by using the coupon SUCCESS13IQ. Presentations are such a key part of your business success. I've seen Simon work. I can absolutely recommend his stuff. And what I would say is learn from the best and become a presentation genius yourself. Okay, welcome back to the second part of the show. Um, this is an opportunity where I get a chance to put Tim on the hot seat and go through the questions that I ask every single guest who appears on the show. So, Tim, are you ready? I am ready. Brilliant. Okay. So you've already kind of like answered this one, but how much time do you spend a week on self-development? Half. Half. Half the week. Okay. Half the week. I block off significant chunks of my schedule to read, to study, and to collaborate with other experts. It's really important to my business, but quite frankly, um, I've been doing this since 97. You can't give away what you don't have. Yeah. So those that commit significant chunks of time on personal development tend to be great at sharing personal development content with others, which is really important. Yeah. And for, I know you like read a lot. Do you listen to audio books and podcasts or do you, is your main focus the reading and the main side of it? I used to listen to a lot more audiobooks um, when I drove. I had a huge commute. Okay. So when I worked at Yahoo, my commute was over an hour each way, and I listened to a lot of audiobooks that I felt like I didn't need to take notes on. I'm, I'm really a big note taker. Mm. So I believe that the more we notate books we read, especially if we separate our notes into things I don't want to forget and things I want to share with someone I do business with, it's really a powerful tool. But today, Amazon makes it possible um, for you to have something, uh, a synchronization, so that if I'm listening to an audiobook and I come into my house and I open up my Kindle, it synchronizes to where I was on the audiobook. That's cool. Yeah, I think so that's probably one I, of their best, best inventions that they've ever come up with, that one. 
I think it's brilliant. So yeah, yeah I, I I do I do like books, but I'm I'm open to audiobooks. And yes, I do listen to some podcasts as well. My my mind diet now is adjusted. I'm about sixty six percent books. I'm about twenty percent other long form content, which can be podcasts, studies, uh, things like Harvard Business Review, and then the remaining percentage, whatever that is, thirteen percent, would be everything else from media to social media. I really try to make sure that I don't consume too much social media or too much um, amateur media, which a lot of people refer to as blogs. And I don't mean amateur in a pejorative way. I just mean most of it's not fact-checked, and so that's a very difficult thing for me um, to depend on. Yeah, because a lot of it's their own. But whereabouts would you stand from that point of view where it's based on their experience? Is that... I'm inspired by people's personal experience, but I I need to know that there's some reason to believe it's going to apply to my tribe before I invoke it, right? So I I like the combination of an anecdotal experience as well as research. Because if you think about scientific theory, Jeff, it goes like this. Someone has an experience and they develop a hypothesis. And um, then they conduct an experiment with a lot more people to test the hypothesis And then if the test replicates the personal experience, they have a theory. And that's the approach I like to take um, to to what I share. Okay, brilliant. Okay. So question number two is what's your favorite personal development book and why? Now, I'm not trying to be difficult with you, dude. Um, (laughs) But I'm such a voracious reader. It's such a core part of Love is the Killer Apps to be a reader of a lot of books. Um, So it's hard for me to single one out. That'd be like asking me, you know, what's my favorite hip-hop band well i don't know it depends on my mood right okay but let me give you a few things okay. let me give you a one from my past okay. let me give you a surprising one and then let me give you a current one okay Ready? brilliant yeah fantastic from the past the one that made the biggest difference to me i believe would have to be dr covey's seven habits of highly affected people and not just because of this abundant scarcity thing we talked about mm. there are points in that book that are game changing i've got to say sharpen the saw is such an important chapter for a person to think about, you know, how you continue to lead or seek first to understand, then to be understood. It rewired the way I thought about empathy. So that book for me is still something that I think everybody should go read. Okay, here's a surprising personal development book I read several years later, and I still recommend to a lot of people, regardless of their philosophy or religious belief. I recommend The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. That book is a game changer. When you finish that book, you'll have a true understanding of what compassion really is. You'll, you'll, you'll realize that compassion is your desire that other people do not suffer unnecessarily. You'll understand that, that happiness is merely the absence of negative thought, which is often fed by the expression of compassion. And whether you're a leader, whether you're a salesperson, whoever you are, um, this particular philosophy that the Dalai Lama puts out in this book is going to really help you with the people side of business. Okay. Finally, current books. Um, I always like to talk about the last really cool book I've read because that's always kind of fun. Um, There's a book by um, a a reporter named Frank Senzo. So he's been a Pulitzer Prize reporter, CNN, all those other things. He's interviewed tens of thousands of people. He he published a recent book. It's called Ask More. And it's about the power of questions Mm -hmm. to create 
more compelling conversations. And it's it's great. It really helps you think of every situation that where you'll have a conversation with somebody, not just an interview, and the kinds of strategic questions that lead to storytelling and collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. Like for example, just if you want one tip out of the book, one tip. So when someone's sharing a story with you, Typically speaking, they share it in headline form. Usually they always share the short version of it, especially if it's a story that, that reveals vulnerability. And the most important thing you need to do is to say, tell me more. Mm, Yeah. That promotes more information sharing than saying, really? That happened to me. Shut up, sit down, let me tell you my story. So anyway, I love Ask More. I think that's a great book on listening skills, which I think is probably one of the biggest deficits for most people in personal development. No, that's brilliant. Excellent. Okay, so I'll get I'll get them on the uh, show notes as well. Okay, so the um the next question is, what is your favorite app? Evernote. Evernote. I didn't oh. say Everton. I yeah. said Evernote. <laughs> Wait, yeah. Rooney. No, um, I, I said Evernote. I look. I live in Evernote. That's everything I do is in Evernote. It, you know, I, there, there's different ways to do the same thing. You know, my, my Mac has notes and yeah. Microsoft has OneNote. But what I love about Evernote is I'm a whiteboard guy. Yeah. So if you were in my studio here, you'd have two whiteboards, and I I put on jazz music and outline everything I write first, and then that the outline I take a picture of it and w- with my, my my phone in Evernote and Evernote imports it into the note and I can search and, and unless I'm writing chicken scratch, yeah. um, it finds words on whiteboards. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. So there's a lot of features I love with it. Yeah. You, your, What's um, your favorite app? Um, I'm curious, actually, in, favorite? in truth, Evernote, um, it is one of the, it, it is completely transformed the way I, I actually brainstorm stuff quite similar to you. I've got three whiteboards in the office. Um, mm-hmm. I've tried to persuade the wife that I want a whiteboard wall. Um, I haven't quite won on that battle yet. But it is, it is literally, I love I love its diversity. I literally live in it from, you know, drawings to mind maps to lists to all my information for my, for my guests on my show, everything. Yep. Everything just goes. And what, I, what I love about it, not to go on and on, but I've got a lot of files on my computer. I have a terabyte disk on my laptop because I'm a hoarder. I'm an information hoarder. So the problem is when you're trying to find something on your computer and you go through Spotlight, it shows you everything, including all the emails you ever sent. But in the little world of Evernote, when I search for history of mentorship, it pulls up just that note where I outline the history of mentorship and boom. Hey, let me tell you a quick hack too for Evernote for those of us that enthuse with this. So for those of you that read books on Kindle, and you highlight a lot of things, and maybe you even make notes, you type in little notes. Did you know that if you go to kindle.amazon.com and log in to your account, there'll be a tab there called My Highlights. And if you click on it, it'll show you everything you've ever highlighted in every Kindle book you've ever read, including all of your notes. And you can go globally copy it and paste it into Evernote, making it now searchable and instantly retrievable, say, if you want to review the key parts of a book before recommending it. So that's a great example of how you know Evernote allows you to carry not only you know, your ideas around, but all your references. Wow. Okay. I mean, I think that's the great thing with it. You can connect on so many different things. I mean, you I can invest- share evidence with other people. Yeah, you can. And I mean, I, I invested in a SnapScan scanner. So, Everything goes in and it just immediately gets sent to Evernote and it just makes life so much easier. I don't really use paper that much now. At least it gets written, put on Evernote and then get stumped off. So, yeah, brilliant. I'm I'm sure I'm going to do an episode on Evernote one day. 
because it seems to be the one that keeps coming up. <laughs> okay, the next one is question number four is what's your biggest business mistake and what did it teach you? I'll tell you when I, I had young before okay. I had achieved any level of success and then when I had more recently. So Okay. Because I'm never going to answer these easy for you, buddy. No, that's cool. Uh, when I was in my late 20s, I was a successful salesperson at Southwestern Bell Mobile. I mentioned that. They're the ones that launched cellular phones. They were the gorilla in the space. They had the highest quality of service by a mile. Their distant competitor uh, was Southern Communications, uh, not as many towers. Um, but Southern Communications aggressively recruited me and said, hey, if you come here, we're really going to appreciate you more. We're going to let you give away more free minutes. We're going to give you a little bit better commission. You won't have to work on Saturdays. And most importantly, you'll be the top dog in our pack instead of just one of those guys like you are at Bell. And my ego said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so I quit my job and I went to work for these jokers. And guess what? No one could get their phones to work. And I learned a big lesson. Don't leave a high-quality company over a compensation offer, okay? If you move jobs, move to a company that's better in terms of what they do for customers. And if that's a real – I've told so many young people to watch out for this trap in life. Because if, mm. if, you, think, if you think selling a low-quality product is easy, go try it for a minute. There's no compensation when you've got 100% returns. So that was an early mistake. Mm. Later in my career, say like a decade ago, after Love is a Killer app came out and I was really on top of things – I was always I was always thinking I can do a TV show. I want to do a reality show. And I really thought that what I did on the stage would transfer to TV. And um, so I spent a lot of resources. Jeff, I got a showrunner, which means the guy that produced uh, The Surreal Life, a popular MTV show. And we met with networks and everything. And do you know what we never did? We never bothered to screen test me. So finally, we get to ABC. We have been working on this show. I've spent tens of thousands of hours developing the format for the show. And then so Vicky, who's the director of programming for this, she says, well, it's great. Let's get him in front of a camera and do a quick screen test of him as a host. And then they got back the video and she goes, man, up close like that, you're funny, but not in a way that you're supposed to be funny. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you know, it's more funny like McFly from Back to the Future, not funny like Chris Rock. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and so what I realized is that not everything applies to You can't do everything just because you want to do everything. And then all of us have our areas of expertise. And for me, um, what I'm doing right now with you in podcasting or what I would do on stage as a speaker mm. are really my areas. And I don't need to be the next Ryan Seacrest. No, no. And it's it's kind of like that, isn't it? Because I think it's, it's I know um, Wayne Dyer talks about that in the um, the movie The Shift. Is he talks about when we're younger, we pursue the bl what I would always describe as we pursue the bling without really any in the morning of our lives. But then as we move to the afternoon, we kind of like got more depth, more life experience, and we realize that we can still be where we want to be, but we can do it in a, a I guess a more sensible way. Because mm -hmm. we realize what's what our power is, what our passions are, what the things we enjoy, rather than just trying to jump on everything that's shiny that offers us a fast car or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. True. So true. Um, okay. Question number five is, what are your challenges in balancing life and work and how do you manage them? Social media and the fact that we consider it a platform to market our business. What does that mean? It's addictive. 
Mm. You can never stop checking on how many people have viewed your latest video you've put on LinkedIn or whatever. So social media totally encroaches on those boundaries between work and life. So it, it's like it's like an intellectual form of cocaine. And I mean, I've actually read that that's true. You know, Instagram gathers up likes so you get hit with 42 likes at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, LinkedIn gives you notifications in your email that somebody commented on one of your posts. So I think that since social media came out, it's much harder than ever to shut off at five mm. and to ignore it on the weekends. And, you know, I, I, I've had a lot of challenges. And one of my secret hacks is when my wife and I go out, for anything, for dinner, for a concert, for whatever, I don't carry a phone. Wow, that's so 80s. I don't carry a phone. She's got a phone. I mean, if there's an emergency, right? right? Yeah. She doesn't have the problem. I do. Yeah. So I've learned to disconnect for great periods of time. And the more you do that, the easier it is. So, so recommendation leaders, um, leave your phone in your, at your desk when you'd have your next meeting with one of your people, try it. It'll blow your mind. Or the next time you go on a date with your, your significant other, try that. Try not checking sports scores every 15 minutes or, you know, taking selfies and posting pictures of your food. You'd be surprised how much closer you'll get to the other person, how much more balanced you're going to be. Yeah, you are right. Because, I mean, that's one of my pet peeves is when um, if I'm meeting with a prospect or even when I'm, you know, if if I'm meeting with a client or if I'm having a meeting with someone and they one of the rules is, is you need to switch your phones off while you're doing the session. But it's mm-hmm. amazing how many people will talk to you while looking at their phone. Just, I know. It's the myth of multitasking. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, you'll sit there and go, how can you engage in a conversation when you're not even looking? And therefore, you're Jerry, not really listening. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, has this joke. He said he went to L.A. when he was working on his first movie idea. And he says, God, I hate the L.A. guys. They all set their cell phones in the middle of the table and – you know, if it rings, they immediately pick it up and leave the room. And he says, I just wanted to go out in the hallway and call them on their cell phone so I could have five minutes of their undivided attention. <laughs> yeah, but it is true. I mean, it's, it's, um, it is so true. it's, it's crazy. It doesn't have, it, it really does get me, uh, my back up when it's like, come on, we're trying to do some work here. And you're either, look, as you say, it's pinged and it's a cat that's just jumped off the top of a building. It's not, yeah. most of the time, it's not even important. It's just some something, but we're trained to respond. We're like all Pavlov's dogs, aren't we? We're just as soon as the buzzer goes, that's it. We're off. <laughs> let's let's go. But it is a crazy. So I like that strategy. It's a different strategy. I've never. I'm going to try that one because I must admit, I I generally put it on silent. But sometimes, like if my wife gets up and goes somewhere, it's like, oh no, I'll quickly have a look at that. But I like I like that con. I'm going to try, I'm going to experiment with that, Tim. Thank you. Try that, buddy. I will. Okay. Question number six is what advice would you give an entrepreneur that you wish you had known starting out? Um, well, I would say that you need to start building the culture of your company from day one. Mm. And you need to be very careful about the first few people you hire because they will be 90% of your culture. Culture is a conversation led by leaders about what we value and how we do things here. And you don't wait till you have 100 people to build a culture. I can't tell you how many startups fail because they have a default culture, every person for themselves. And when they get out of that honeymoon period of, hey, we're starting something from scratch, 
they go to war with each other. And founders, co-founders who've been friends their entire life break up. And the reason why is because they don't have any glue to hold the organization together. That's what culture is, right? Mm. When culture is very consistent and you scrutinize every new person on the team asking, does she fit our culture? What you're creating is a collective intuition about what we're supposed to do even when the boss is not around. Think of it like having an operating system for an organization. So for entrepreneurs, starting with person number two, be very clear in your mind about the values that you hold that differentiate your business to the market and make that how you hire, how you promote, how you reward, make it part of every conversation, create rituals like a Friday beer bash or an award. Um, I mentioned before Nolan Bushnell at Atari. Yeah. They used to have this they used to have this uh, I think it was called the Golden Turkey Award. And the Golden Turkey Award was given to a person who had the most spectacular failure that year. Like the most embarrassing, spectacular failure. And they gave that person not only an award, but a standing ovation because he wanted to create a culture of risk taking. So sometimes it's a question of just putting that ritual into place. But entrepreneurs don't wait on it because culture is more important than strategy. I like that because also what you sometimes find is is that when they bring the same attitudes and and, and culture, what they work to say if they've come from corporate to start their own business, they bring mm. that whole and it may be one of the reasons that they've left, but they right. they will still bring it into their new business and they bring use that, that as bureaucracy. a Yeah, yeah. Right? It, they start coming in talking about policy. I think about yeah. Jason Friedman, his great book, Rework. He said policy is the scar tissue of a company, usually created as an overreaction to something that will never happen again. Yeah, no, I like that. And you bring that in to a startup, you yeah. lose all the agility that allows you to punch above your weight. No, brilliant. Okay. Question number seven is what is your definition of success? Moving forward. I have an unconventional view about this, Jeff. Okay. I believe that success is not a destination. Yeah, it's a journey. Kind you, of you'll journey. never get there. No. I have had the opportunity to work for three billionaires in my life. Three. Mm-hmm. And at the moment they became billionaires – They were always driven by angst of what is next because that's what champions think, right? So I fear that we say, well, you know, success is uh, a home for my family, college for my kids, and a car I love to drive in a retirement account. That's not success. That's accumulation, and that's fine. But I've always been raised to believe that success is a direction and that direction's forward. So Mm -hmm. I think success is the ongoing realization of our potential through self-development. I really think Abraham Maslow nails it. Mm -hmm. He calls self-actualization, I call success, and it is absolutely aspirational. You'll never get there, and that's what's going to keep you from growing old. Yeah, that's the the adventure kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Okay, so question number eight is um, basically a set of, uh, you get a choice to pick a number between one and 50. Each number represents a a life rule that I have sort of come up with based on my experience of going through a long-term illness, coming out the other side, and having different attitudes and values to what I had beforehand. So um, you're quite happy to uh, disagree with it because it's a lesson and you may have learned something else. So if you could pick a number between 1 and 50, Tim, that would be great. I want the penultimate lesson. The penultimate lesson. Number 49. Sorry, I'm being wonky. Number 49. Second to last, penultimate. Oh, you were Googling it, penultimate. Ah, second to last, 49. (laughs) 
Well, actually, it's it 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 is probably the penultimate. It's daily action. Okay. So it's one of the things is what I realized was is is that when I was um my I I call it my previous life before my kind of like crucible moment, is I would kind of like sit there and have an expectation that things would change without me really doing anything about it. And right. I've I also meet quite a lot of people that look at the um kind of like talk about the secret and the law of attraction and that sort of thing. And it amazes me how many people, regardless of their belief about it, but how many people think that all they have to do is visualize in order for it to to actually happen. But I do think yeah. there's an important aspect of we have to do things on a on you know on a consistent basis in order to make a positive impact on our lives, whether it be changing of attitudes, looking at new habits, whatever it is. I think there's an importance of taking daily action. And I just wondered yeah. what your thought was. Oh, absolutely. I think I think that I think that seeing the future is a step, mm. but acting on the future is a great leap, yeah. right? So, so I think about you know great, great, great people I've read. Like I, I love you know Benjamin Franklin always said you know never, never confuse motion with action, and I really agree a lot with that. So, yeah. so I believe that when we see something we want, we need to leap into action and be willing to analyze its results and innovate from there. Um, what, what the original CEO I worked for at Yahoo, people don't know his name very well, Tim Kugel. If you're okay. back in the day, he left during the market crash of 2000, but he was their original adult they brought in from Motorola, very experienced dude. Okay. And the coolest lesson he ever shared with me is he says, hey, Tim, if you want to be more successful in life, do yourself a favor. Always hang out with the Eds, never hang out with the Ings. And I was like, What? I thought it was like some kind of like weird, what are you talking about? And he goes, I want to do business with people that launched it, failed at it, attempted it, reinvented it. I do not want to do business with people that are talking about it, thinking about it, working on it. He says the ings never do anything in life. Look for people who've done things, good, bad, or ugly, and you'll surround yourself with people that know how to execute because execution is the key to success. I love that. Yeah, that's so true. That's so, oh, I love that one. I like that one. That could be a tweet. That one. I just, that could be a tweet. We, we will we will tweet it when you are currently putting your phone somewhere where you can't see it because you're currently on a date night or doing something of more use. <laughs> but <laughs> but that was um, no, that's brilliant. And um, could you just give us an um, sort of the the floor is yours and telling people how they can find out a little bit more about you? Absolutely. So we've set up a special page just for your listeners. It's got an excerpt, 5,000 words of Love is the Killer app. It's also got a way for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out the book Love is the Killer app and get other good stuff. And it is timsanders.com front slash success IQ. That's timsanders.com front slash success IQ. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Tim. And what we'll do is we'll put that on the um, on the show notes as well to help people um, get there quick and get the access to that fantastic content. Tim, it just gives Great. me the final opportunity just to say thanks very much, wishing you the greatest success. And I really enjoyed our interview today. I enjoyed it as well. So first of all, just let me say a massive thank you for joining me today. It's lovely to know that you're out there listening. And it's great to have the emails that I get from you with suggestions about the show and what you think about the show. That's really nice. Really does help me make the show even better. 
If you'd like to find out more about me and the types of services I offer or my social media links, then please visit www.jeffnicholson.uk. You can also join us on the Facebook page. Just search for Success IQ Podcast. And that's a new page that we've put up that I'm trying to grow and develop. So you can tune in and find us on other stations such as Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and of course, iTunes. And if you have the time, it would be great if you could pop over there, leave a rating, leave a review, because it really does help me grow the show and make the impact that I'm really looking for. So just to say, I hope you have a fantastic week. I wish you the greatest success and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Take care.